Hello and welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest developments impacting the user experience of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, and on the go. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients with insights, analysis, and expertise. I am Lisa Cooper, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Chris Schreiner. Hello. And Derek Vita. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about the issues faced by consumers and UX designers of increasingly complex and connected devices and services. How are users handling this? How do UX designers design for this? This is a large topic. So this is part one of a two-part series. So from a user, a user's perspective, devices are becoming increasingly smart, connected, and automated, working together to form increasingly complex brand ecosystems that supposedly provide product-service combinations to consumers. So we know from our research at Strategy Analytics that users are often struggling with keeping up with the pace of innovation, their understanding of how products and services are connected to one another and how they work, the issues associated with the incompatibility, inconsistent and complex setup procedures, and a lack of use cases for certain products that are just a lot easier to do manually than have to deal with some of these issues. This is a very timely topic for me because I'm wrapping up some research currently on connected services for the car. And the car has had all sorts of issues over the past decade plus on connecting the things that people want to bring into the car, right? One of the early ways automakers were addressing this was via connected service suites, and they would brand them with very futuristic sounding names like Blue Link or like My Audi or Nissan Connector or whatever that users didn't really understand or even particularly like and that dealers had no idea how to sell. Well, now let's take voice assistance as one example of the layer that's going on top of that. And now you're asking users to connect this voice experience, this branded voice experience with a connected service that's automaker branded, and then somehow get all of that into the car. It is complicated. And then to do that, to run a service by uh, yet another party <laughs> like Spotify or Pandora. Exactly. And we see this holding up progress in entire industries. So like the whole smart home industry, the main problem that's keeping users away, we think is this issue with integration and being right. able to set up devices to talk to each other and do what they're supposed to do. Exactly. Uh, it's also challenging for designers too. So internet of things systems, such as smart homes, autonomous vehicles, um, and now remote collaboration platforms, or even remote healthcare monitoring systems, we're evolving the way UX designers do their job. So instead, designers are called to create products that are part of a larger connected collection of services, devices, and sensors, and in many cases, across various ecosystems. So complexity is increasing in several ways. The number of smart devices and sensors to collect and access the information is increasing. So for example, in the home, we have smart speakers such as Amazon Alexa that connect with appliances, light bulbs, thermostats, and so on. A wider array of functions and services that have been included within these ecosystems. For example, Samsung's family hub, uh, which connects to various appliances, cameras, smartphones, and all sorts of services and capabilities. And the context of use 
um, are increasing. With that brings an array of different form factors. For example, smartphones can be used to connect to Samsung's family hub by multiple people and who may be in multiple environments. And then that same information can be accessed uh, through a touchscreen on the fridge. So it's a completely different mode of access from a smartphone. And on top of that, the amount of data that can be collected has now increased considerably, as well as the AI and the data analytics that have become more prolific. So it's a big job for designers to try and integrate new products and services together into something that's very coherent for users. And at this point, a product cannot be designed in isolation. We had a lot of fragmentation on the ideal connectivity protocol for many years. I remember when yeah. there was a big fight between things like Bluetooth versus NFC, mm -hmm. and Bluetooth ended up winning out for a lot of different things, including the automotive being the most obvious example, but also even things like now wireless headphones with a device that you want to connect it with. And it, it's so cumbersome and slow. I had heard someone describe it very well recently that in the year 2021, pairing two things on Bluetooth still feels like trying to get pandas to mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it's very difficult to follow that. Um, but <laughs> let's talk about responsive systems versus smart systems. We need less emphasis on the smartness of a system uh, or, or more of a technology push approach. Uh, we need to focus more on responsive systems that uses uh, whatever innovation is available to create products and services that allow users, stakeholders, and preferably context-aware connected products and services to make decisions together. To design a, a responsive system, we need to rely heavily on co-creation of products and devices where stakeholders, users, and designers come together as part of the design process from beginning to the end. And too often, users are brought in at the start and at the end. And the design process itself is carried out by the design team. And this method is also known as a participatory approach. Um, and the benefits of this approach, you have great innovation, you get more personalized solutions, there's buy-in from all those involved, empathy between stakeholders and users can happen if they're brought together uh, to challenge assumptions and can actually gener generate more ideas together than, than separately. And there's a deeper understanding just generally uh, between multiple contexts, tasks, and users, it, and not to mention digital inclusion uh, as part of all of this too. And we can make sure that we're eliminating any bias uh, with our design teams, gender bias, uh, any socioeconomic biases, and so on with the design. So one good example of this kind of approach would be in the development of a smart city and their digital replica or their digital twin. Uh, and there's one initiative going on right now in Europe known as Duet. It's called Digital Urban European Twins. So this is a complex system as you can get. Uh, there's various devices that will be involved that will access various aspects of a smart city and by various people in varying contexts. So to give you an example, uh, a government entity in the future may want to get feedback from both businesses, other government entities and citizens about future city development. So they'd be able to simulate in real time proposed changes using a digital replica or digital twin. So then that digital twin could be accessed by government business entities, as well as citizens, 
and they'll need to access uh, varying degrees of information about those proposed changes. So, for example, if you're creating a new building or something like that, and these everybody's coming in with different uh, knowledge, different education, different technologies, and they'll need different uh, levels of information about that proposed solution. So, in the design of these complex systems, getting various stakeholders together at every point in the process where they can develop an understanding of each other's needs and requirements would really help with this uh, kind of a project. It's a very, very difficult challenge for UX designers because as systems become more complex, you think about all of the possible use cases that you would have to try and look at and optimize. All of the different types of devices that could be there, all of the different data streams that may or may not be there at any given moment. We talked before about recent episode about Robinhood, about about having to design for misuse of a system. The more complex these are, it almost exponentially creates more use cases or more things that you have to take into account when you're trying to design it. And it makes the entire process just overly burdensome on a team of UX designers. Right. And, and having so many different kinds of people accessing it on so many different devices. That may have different functionality between them. and Exactly. And different stakeholders might have different concerns about sharing their data or opening up their data set for input. So for example, if I am a UX-minded stakeholder for a mapping company, I might be okay curating that data myself and then sharing that with other organizations. But I don't want to be completely open source where a bad actor can go in and change the name of my city, change street locations, and so on and so forth. Whereas other UX designers and other organizations don't even think about that. Like security isn't really a, an enormous deal, right? Right. And so it's aligning all of those varied specs, concerns, yeah. in a way that the glue between all of these sets can really work in a meaningful and secure way. Exactly. So let's talk about product service collaborations. When it comes to the home environment, we're seeing a trend towards collaboration between products and services. So for example, again, I'll use Samsung's Family Hub. In addition to their SmartThings app, they partner with Bixby, Alexa, Google Assistant to provide speech control to their appliances. But they also allow users to order from Grubhub, Amazon Dash, Instacart, ShopRite and various others directly from their touch screen on their fridge, as well as provide connection to NPR, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I mean, this fridge can do everything. <laughs> Another example would be LG's ThinQ, collaborating with Kraft Heinz, Nestle and HomeAdvisor, as well as having uh, open partnerships with Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant as well. So it makes sense to collaborate with other services and brands because there's many benefits to that, right? Uh, there's a combination of products and services can be a lot more responsive to diverse and changing user needs. And partnership between companies also allow each to showcase their core competencies with a wider audience and encourage innovation and potential for more sustainable product lifestyle cycles. There's, there's so many benefits to it, but in order to capitalize on it, we, we also need to, from UX professionals' perspective, look into personalization and empowerment uh, while not being creepy about it. I'm talking about the learning habits. We don't want to be creepy about the learning habits, right? right. <laughs> I mean, we've all had that situation where you've had a conversation and then all of a sudden you're it's getting... <laughs> getting ads on Facebook about it. Exactly. All the time. <laughs> 
So that distrust in that personalization uh, needs to be addressed. Uh, it can be really creepy. While at the same time, uh, creating interfaces that allow this continued expansion and collaboration uh, between service providers outside their brand family. To go to Derek's point, we have to avoid fragmentation when we do that. We can't have too many third-party apps or cause confusion. I would comment as well that although partnerships are absolutely crucial for these product service partnerships to really take off, they also have to meet a user need. Does anybody remember the Amazon Dash button? Yep. For those of you who don't remember, the Amazon Dash button was the little, but I don't know, was it like three inches long, something like that? It was and small. It had, yeah. You're right. And it had the name of a brand on it, like Bounty or something like that. And it was a, just a little physical button. And you press the button and it reorders your Bounty paper towels on Amazon. Who's that for? <laughs> I'm not going to have my kitchen littered with not just all of the stuff that I need in my kitchen, but also all of the buttons that I need to order all the stuff <laughs> that I regularly have on hand. Right? Instead of a backsplash, be- you have just a series of <laughs> dash buttons. Right, right. And, and we joke about this, but Amazon really put a lot of effort into this idea, right? And partnered with retailers to really make this happen, and it didn't really take off because I don't know how to say this in, in uh, more tech ways. It was stupid. <laughs> well, it's fairly easy to reorder as well on Amazon. Yeah, you're not really saving them a lot of effort. No, no. And while creating the chance for accidental activations and ordering. Right, exactly. Exactly. Let's get on to the topic of interusability. This is a term that was used to describe usability across multiple connected devices to promote an integrated and more coherent user experience designers they need to consider basically three aspects of interusability the first one is composition how functionality especially user facing functionality is organized and distributed across tools in a system and there's two types of either extreme examples of this so a multi-channel system is where same, there's the same function that goes across multiple devices. So something like Netflix, you can access on your phone, on your laptop, on your tablet, and so on. But it's the same interface. Versus a cross-media system. Uh, this is where dedicated devices with specialized functions provide a service that's greater than its parts. So this would be, uh, examples would be like a smart speaker being used to control multiple devices in a home. So those are the two extremes, and most systems are somewhere in the middle. So once we've composed that system, that has to make sense, of course. Uh, And then the interusability of these devices will also rest on the consistency of the information, as well as the continuity and the flow of data and interactions within and across these tools. Chris and Derek, I was going to ask, are there times where composition or continuity and consistency have created issues for you in in your own experiences or your own research? Yeah, so I'll take an example from some of the automotive research that we've done. So having information go across different displays. So this would be an example of uh, a multi-channel where it's the same information across different displays. So they would have it in your normal infotainment display on the center stack, and then they would put it in your instrument cluster as well. Got it. And they would let you try and control it from steering wheel controls, control what's in the cluster. But 
they weren't consistent in what could be done. So there were certain features that you couldn't do on the display on the instrument cluster that you could do on the head unit in the center stack. Right. So we would find that users, they knew they could do everything in the center stack. They weren't quite sure if they were going to start a task, whether or not they would be able to do it with the steering wheels in the instrument cluster. So we always find that in that case, a user is going to say, well, I'm going to default to what I know is going to work. So right. they would just ignore this alternate method of doing it. And we see similar things with anything you could do on a smartphone projection system, like with CarPlay or Android Auto, with any function that they could also accomplish on an onboard system, the smartphone mirroring system is going to accomplish it more easily and more efficiently. And so there's a lot of que ongoing questions in our research that honestly we have de-emphasized uh, in later surveys just because we know what the answer is going to be. Like the experience in smartphone projection systems is going to be like that much better. I have another example from my home entertainment system. I simultaneously love and hate my Roku. <laughs> I, I hate that I have to have this separate device to access all of the connected services and, and media services that I use in my living room. But I love how all of the content that I want is there and it is quick and fast and easy to use. I would much rather in an ideal world have all of that functionality embedded in my television. And I do, as we have a smart TV by Samsung, but it's so slow and slow cumbersome that the media services that we use are essentially pointless on there. We also don't necessarily like the visual treatment that is on our Apple TV. And so for now, Roku gives us all of the content that we use and consume in the fastest, most efficient way on the Roku. And so that's what we end up going with. This is a very interesting discussion. It's such a big topic that we are going to continue on with this um, next week in part two of this episode. We'll talk more in that episode about mental models, about technology that's coming down the pipeline when it comes to issues associated with reliability and privacy, and what designers can do to address these issues. So it's time for condensed soup. Condensed soup. Condensed soup. Whoop, whoop. So here's a question. <laughs> Would you buy an appliance that had access to all of your connected devices, your security cameras, your thermostats, your, it was connected to, to all of these services like we talked about earlier. Would you purchase one of those? I mean, these are traditionally more expensive devices. Um, what's your thoughts on this? So for example, you're talking about a refrigerator that has a big touchscreen on the front. Mm -hmm. uh, no. Why not? <laughs> I am an extreme no in this case. So anytime I go to a home improvement store or an appliance store and see all the fridges in a row, those stainless steel or stainless steel lookalike fridges are always so nice. And I imagine just greasy fingerprints all over them. 
when I go and look at new computers and new tablets, they all look so nice. And I think about owning them for a while and getting greasy fingerprints all over them. What do you and do in your home, Derek? So, <laughs> Why do yours have greasy hands? <laughs> I eat a lot of greasy food. Don't judge. So I imagine having a big, nice, fancy fridge with a big, nice, fancy touchscreen on it just being the worst of both worlds. That's sort of where it ends for me. I see. Got it. I would be slightly different. I would, would actually like to have a fridge like that if, if I was at a different stage of my life or in a different life. I see a fridge like that being very helpful for a large family. Sometimes we'll leave notes for each other. It would be nice to have that on the fridge or, you know, you know, daughter's coming home from school. And so put a picture up there. So some little thoughtful gesture like that. I think that would be kind of cool for a larger family, but we're about to be empty nesters. So I don't really see much of a benefit of uh, much use being made of it. The use cases that are best for it really don't suit where I am in my life right now. At the risk of sounding like Clint Eastwood and telling the kids to get off my lawn, to what extent do handwritten notes and magnets accomplish the same thing? Handwritten notes, yes, I don't draw very well, so I, can, I wouldn't do good pictures. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Well, for me, I would definitely consider it mainly for the, mainly for the function of there's a camera on the inside that tells you what's in the fridge so it can help you with your shopping list and you can check the fridge to see if you have or don't have an ingredient. I would need like uh, also a claw that could go and move things off of other things in the fridge to look underneath. There's just one shot of the fridge and I'm not going to tell if I've got something. And I'm sorry for butting in one more time and uh, telling kids to get off my lawn, but to what extent... <laughs> Does opening the fridge and moving things around with your hand accomplish the same thing? Because there are so many times that I am at the shop or the store and I can't remember if I have X, Y, or Z in the fridge. Now, obviously, if it's obstructed by something, I mean, I wouldn't be able to move it anyway because I wouldn't be there. But at least it would give me a chance to see if we had those things. Although, to be honest, it would be more useful if I had that in the pantry or cupboards. That would be very helpful. So, yeah, maybe they should have uh, some sort of system for stacking food that would allow that to be easy, more easily seen. But that, that's why I would, because that to me, that's happened so many times. It happens to me on a regular basis where I'm, I'm somewhere and I just can't remember, do we have this ingredient? Don't we have this ingredient? Okay, I, I can see that, especially if it's a passive system where I don't have to manually input every can of garbanzo beans that I put in the pantry. If that can just be done automatically. All right, I'm coming around to this, Lisa. <laughs> but that's me. I mean, that's, that's what I struggle with regularly. So it would definitely help me out. If you would like to talk more about integration of connected products and services, or you'd like to learn more about smart home research that we've done at Strategy Analytics, send us any questions you may have or just reach out to say hi. You can email us at uxsoup 
at strategyanalytics.com. The show notes on our podcast website, ux-soup.com, has links to our recent research on integration of connected devices. And there you can also connect with each of us on LinkedIn. A reminder that UX Soup is sponsored, as always, by Strategy Analytics. Check out the latest user-focused insights in mobile, automotive, and smart home by visiting strategyanalytics.com. Thanks for joining us. Bye for now.